0: to the book of Titus. As we are jumping back in our series, we took a bit of a break for our Christmas uh, Advent time to celebrate our Lord and Savior's birth, and now we are continuing back on in our series, and we'll be continuing on uh, for about the next month and then jumping into our next series, which will be examining the life of Elijah. But until then, we are going to be finishing up or going through the last chapter of Titus, and as you're turning there to Titus Chapter 3, actually, we'll be beginning at the end of chapter 2.15. I'd like us to think about something for a moment. Uh, thinking about how the Bible is actually a big book of opposites. I don't know if you've ever noticed this or not, but the Bible calls us to do a lot of different things than what the world calls us to do. The Bible says if you want to gain, you must lose. If you want to be first, you must be last. If you want to find success, you must serve. If you want to find joy, you must deny, and if you want to live, you must die. In this past break, one of my friends put his their status on Facebook, something that's not original to them, but I was very affected by it, said this, The greatest man in history, named Jesus, had no servants, yet they called him master. Had no degree, yet they called him teacher. Had no medicines, yet they called him healer. He had no army, yet kings feared him. He won no military battles, yet he conquered the world. He committed no crime yet they crucified him. He was buried in a tomb yet he lives today. See God has his own way of doing things in our world and it's largely opposite of what our this physical natural world it's the opposite of what this how the world does it. See the Bible says we're to live one way while the world tells us to live quite another. And we have this tension within us on which is going to win. Which voice are we going to listen to? I remember several years ago I was on a basketball team in high school and uh, as a freshman I found myself being a lot better than my peers. Uh, I, I really enjoyed the game and by as a freshman I ended up starting varsity and ended up being the leading scorer my freshman year. Which isn't saying a lot when you only win two games. <laughs> we weren't very good. I have to say we were quite terrible. But as uh, we started to grow, there was a lot of young guys around me that we grew In the next year uh, I lost my starting position, which was really hard. I had practiced, and, and I thought I was the, the man I was during the Michael Jordan era when you want every kid wanted to be Michael Jordan. I just lacked several things, such as six foot six height and jumping ability and talent. so uh, i didn 't have any of those things to help bring me along that line, and it was hard for me because I, 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 you know, I, I follow the commercials like Mike, if I could be like Mike. And I wanted to be that. And it was hard because every time that I, we, I would get the ball, I would try to do that. And it would cause disruption to the team. And I, I had to learn to accept my role the next year. Even though I'd lost my starting position, when I learned to accept my role, things flowed much better when we would get on the floor. And, and we ended up winning quite a bit of games. I, I didn't start. I wasn't the star of the team. But I was part of the team. And we ended up going 20. Uh, the next year we were 500. We won as many games as we lost. And 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 you got to remember, we were so bad my first year, parents wouldn't even come to games. That's bad when parents don't even come to your games. Uh, and, and and it was you could hear echoes and crickets. I mean that's how the game was. And by my junior year though, we had gotten to be got to be so good. We were we ended up being 26 and seven. We had a brand new gymnasium built. People would wait an hour to come and see the game. And we went to the Sweet 16. It was fabulous to be a part of that team and see that transformation. And I wasn't the star then either. I had to learn to embrace my role, which was really hard to do. Because, you know, when you're on the court, I don't know if you've ever been in any athletic contest, or even uh, as you're out there, everybody has an opinion on how you're to play the game. We're all good Monday morning quarterbacks, are, are we not? We know what the team should have done or what you should do. And being on a basketball court... Parents, God bless parents, I mean, I'm a parent myself, I hope I don't do this, but parents seem to know better than the coaches do. Have you ever noticed that? So every time their son gets the ball, shoot it! <laughs> they're on the other side of the court, never mind that part, but shoot it! So they, they, the kid needed to understand, I, and, and our coach would tell us, he would say, drown out every other voice, hear mine alone, mine's the one that's important, and everybody's going to have a way that should be, how it should be played, but they're not on the court, And if you listen to my voice, we'll find success. And he was right. We did. And we saw a transformation occur. Now, I I say this because, you know, there's a lot of voices out there telling us how we are to live in society and how we are to interact with the world. But we have to disregard all of those voices and hear the voice of God. And we're going to see that God calls us to something completely opposite than what the world does. And that's why today we're call, I'm calling this message Roll Call. God is calling us to assume different roles within the world in order to honor God. And when we honor God and we assume the role that He has, we will find and discover joy and peace. Because it's through that, not what anyone else says. And, and I have to say that very clearly. You might have had someone that could have been the all-star out in the audience calling you, but it's not the coach, and the, our coach is Jesus Christ. He's the one that's designed it. Matter of fact, he invented the game. He's the one that's put it all together, and he knows the surest path to victory. So please turn with me to the book of Titus. Hopefully you're there, and we're going to begin in uh, the last verse in Titus, chapter 2, verse 15, and carrying it into uh, chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. So please stand with me, it's our tradition here, to stand for the reading of God's Word as an aspect of honor to Him. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. The Apostle Paul writes to Titus by the Holy Spirit and says, Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we ask your blessing on our time together today. I, Lord, I pray that our hearts might... Receive this truth. Lord, as you have said time and time throughout your word, uh, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Lord, may our ears be open. May our heart be inclined to do what it is that you have determined and desired us to do. Lord, please remove any aspect of unbelief, any hard-heartedness, any rebellion. And Lord, may we receive your word because we know that it is living and active. Lord, if you desire to cut us, please do so because we know it's to our betterment, to our own healing. So, Lord, we ask that you show us clearly within your word the roles that you desire us to fulfill and pursue within society so that your name might receive honor and glory and both power forevermore. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. In order to understand what's going on and how to, we, the roles that we are to see within our world, we have to examine what life was like in first century Crete. And you have to understand something. In the first century Crete, it was... The situation was tense, tenuous at best. Christianity was con- still considered to be uh, almost a perversion of Judaism. It was called the way. It was still misunderstood by many within Rome, Roman uh, Greco-Roman society. They didn't understand it. And there was a variety of accusations that were going forth uh, of Christianity in general. Christians were c- uh, accused of being incestuous. Because they called one another brother and sister," and they had love feasts. They were considered to be cannibals, because they would continually take of the body and blood of Christ. There was, uh, there was a great deal even of consideration that of idolatry, or actually atheism, not idolatry, atheism, because when they would see different things, there wasn't a, like a, a, a goddess or a, a, a statue to behold. So there are all these accusations. And people were wondering, you know, what's going on within this group of people? What are they doing? And and there was a lot of confusion surrounding it, even with the Roman authorities and and who, who this Christ was and what was going on with Christianity. And so Paul is writing to kind of set the record straight to the believers so that they would know what they were to do within society so Christ would be made attractive and people would be attracted to Him. And he's writing a variety of different things. I'd like us to jump right in here. Start at uh, at verse 15 at the end of chapter 2. Paul starts off uh, writing this. He says, Declare these things, exhort and rebuke. With all authority, let no one disregard you. Now before we move on to chapter 3, we have to ask ourselves a question right here. What are these things that Titus is to declare to the uh, believers within Crete? Well, in order to get... An idea of that, we have to look back. What are these things? If we were to look back at chapter 2, he was talking about the roles we were to pursue, excuse me, as men and women. He talks about older men, younger men, older women, younger women. And he also talks about slaves. He goes through, spends the first 10 verses going through all of these different roles that we're to pursue. And then he says this and look at chapter 2, verse 11. He says, For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age or in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us From all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. He says, Before you understand your role, I want to set the stage. I want you to understand something about yourself. First of all, I want you to understand that you have been converted. You remind them of our conversion, or them and us, of our conversion to Christianity. That's the first point that you can write down in your notes, reminding them of their conversion to Christianity. In other words, he's saying, I'm reminding you what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. There's a great deal of confusion today, and many of us know this. We interact with people on, a, on an everyday basis that we would ask them, they would say, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian. We all know someone like this, right? I mean, you don't have to be a genius to say to say that. People could say, I'm a Christian, and what they mean is is, well, I'm... That's just what I am. Either I was born into it. That's what I'm familiar with. But there's really no heart. And here, Paul's calling them back. This is what the heart of the gospel is. This is what a Christian looks like. A wholehearted, fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ looks like this. And this is what you are. And he wants to remind them of their conversion to Christianity. He says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, all types of people, Neither Jew nor Gentile, nor male nor female, nor slave nor free—it didn't matter. All were beneficiaries. who, Who were all who could be actually all who placed their faith in Christ would be beneficiaries of Christ's atoning death on the cross. But here's what Paul wants us to understand before we can even understand what's going on and how what roles we are to pursue. He wants us to understand that being a Christian involves, first of all, receiving the free gift of grace. For the grace of God has appeared. Receiving the free gift of grace. That's it. There's no other way in. You can't work your way to God. It can't be Jesus and what I do. It's entirely of grace entirely of grace. That's the most amazing thing about it. We've talked about this. This is what sets Christianity apart from everything else. It's already been done. Jesus Christ paid the price and gave you His unmerited favor. Unmerited favor. God gives you unmerited favor because of what Jesus Christ did for you. And He wants us to understand that we have no good in and of ourselves. We have no... no, blessing in the sight of God by ourselves. Without Christ, we are nothing. Because even our righteous deeds, according to the book of Isaiah, are like filthy rags in the sight of God. So we come with our filthy rags. We say, God, how great I am. And He says, they're rags. Only through Christ are we made clean. That's why there is salvation under under no other name in heaven except through Christ. So he wants us to understand our conversion to Christianity, and that being a Christian involves, first of all, uh, receiving the free gift of grace. And let's look on in verse 12 of chapter 2. This grace brings salvation, but it also trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So it also enables us to be restraining ourselves from temptation and sin. That's the second point. He says he's reminding them of this and what the grace of God is doing within their lives. It's training us. Grace trains us. We learn that the word here, when it says trains us, it has at its, its root pedo. Where we get the word like pediatric. It's training, like a training up a child. And grace trains us on to maturity it's not law that always brings conviction and death and continual guilt grace frees where sin abounds grace abounds all the more there is no sin greater than the grace of god it doesn't matter what you've done god's grace is greater god's grace is greater As I mentioned uh, a couple weeks ago, I was really convicted. I was reading about how uh, we're talking about some of the greatest, I mean, these horrible serial killers in history, and some of them have come to know Jesus Christ. And when people hear that, when these guys are on death row, and they say, whatever, no, there's no forgiveness. Their crime is so horrible. They are beyond the grace of God. You have not yet understood the cross then. And what the cross meant, that was the greatest scandal. That was the greatest injustice. By far greater than any injustice or a crime perpetuated by man upon man. And God's, His meritorious death enabled us to have this standing of righteousness in His sight. And we are given this grace time and time again. And that helps train us to say no to wickedness. And the sins that are there. And these sins are always trying to get in your house. I don't know about you, but when it's really cold outside, have you noticed little breezes coming in your house? Standing by my door, I'm like, I'm freezing (laughs) in my own house. But you know, that's what Satan's trying to do. He tries to permeate the crevices and the cracks in your life where he finds a weak spot. He wants to get to you no matter what. And we have to plug that up. We have to plug that up and make sure that we don't have those creases in in our house. He desires to wreck our spiritual life. This grace trains us to be restraining ourselves from temptation of sin. God's grace is so amazing. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. It gives where law cannot. It enables where the will cannot. It doesn't condemn but frees. Oh, how amazing is the grace of God that saved a wretch like me. Paul continues. Look at verse 13 of Titus chapter 2. He says, Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great god and savior jesus christ believers in christ as believers in christ we also must be resting in god's promised return that's number 3 resting in god's promised return that jesus is coming back we don't know the day or the hour we know that he is coming back though jesus is coming back and all christians are to rest in that hope every wrong will be made right as the apostle John wrote in the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verse 7, "...Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him. Even so, amen." Even the book of Revelation, even so, come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. As believers in Christ, we rest in that fact, knowing that He will return. So we're to be resting in God's promised return. But while the Lord tarries, Paul desires that we be reflecting our salvation to others. That's number four. Reflecting our salvation to others. Look at verse 14, chapter 2. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. He's redeeming us, retaining us as His possession, that we are zealous for good works. Why? What would be the point of that? As we are doing these good works, we are doing all these things on the, um, through the name and for the name of Christ, people see Jesus in us. We are. Jesus is the light of the world. But He also says, Let your light shine before men, so that they may glorify your Father who is in heaven, as the book of Matthew says. So we are to be doing these good deeds... In order to be reflecting our salvation to others. Now he moves on. That's the these things that we we just talked about. Paul says, declare these things. Those are the these things. And he says, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. Now Titus is saying, uh, well, Paul is saying to Titus, he's desirous that Titus does four things declare, exhort, rebuke with all authority, and let no one disregard you. He says with all authority, he's making sure that, hey, don't let anyone disregard what what, uh, what you're writing, what you're telling them to do, because Paul wants Titus to understand that he has been endowed with divine authority. Now Titus has here, not us in this, that's not who is being referred to in this passage. Some would say, oh, this is the leaders. No, elders haven't been appointed yet. They were going to be appointed. Remember, that's what we saw in chapter 1. Appoint elders in every city. So they haven't been appointed yet. This is what Titus is to be doing. He's to be doing, uh, conducting himself or making sure that no one disregards him, but to exhort and rebuke with all authority. See, Paul wants to make sure that no one disregards the authority that Titus had been given. Uh, and look at verse 1. Remind them... Titus chapter 3, verse 1. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. See, Paul wants us to be aware of their and our conduct towards authority. See, Titus had been given authority, and then we are making sure that we don't disregard that authority. See, there are two types of authority that Paul wants us to understand that's going on here. This includes authority in our church, That's the first part. Church comes before the rest of it. That's what Paul is commanding Titus to declare these things. What we learn from the word of God as God is entrusted to his church because it is the church that the gates of Haiti or the gates of hell will not prevail against. Did you know no matter how bad it gets in the world, God's church will not be extinguished? No matter how much persecution Uh, gets and how, how much people try to kill Christianity do you know how much that makes it explode even more? Go to China and see how the church has been persecuted and it's flourishing in the underground church. I mean conservative estimates have it to 30 to 40 million but Chinese church leaders say it's more like 300 to 400 million the population of the United States is around 365 million people. Think about that. The church is flourishing So he's saying, though, remind them about their conduct towards authority. Recognize that God has put in place this structure through His Word, the church. So we have the church authority. Titus is not to be disregarded or overlooked. The church of Crete needed to recognize that. It is the apostolic doctrine and the setup of the church that we must hold in high regard. Now, Titus was given this responsibility of setting up the church in Crete because, as Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus, it is through the church that God has chosen to, so that the church, uh, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. God desires to do something through the church that's amazing within the world. As we come together, we who have trusted in Christ, as we are working out our salvation with fear and trembling, God makes himself known as we are gathering together and bonding together for his mission in the world. There's something amazing about that. You know, in the Old Testament, God made his dwelling among the people through the tabernacle. He would come down in the Shekinah glory of God, and then it was the temple. He would fill the temple with his presence. But in the New Testament, we see that we are the temple of God. That's a pretty amazing thing. That God comes and dwells in us by His Holy Spirit. That we are the temple of the living God. That is amazing to think about. That we can have that communion with God because of what Christ has done, that He, through His flesh, tore the veil, and we now can enter into the presence of Almighty and Holy God. And there's something even more amazing because where two or three believers are gathered in Christ's name, according to the book of Matthew chapter 18, Christ is there in the midst of them. In a very profound way, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 also talks about this. When the church of God is gathering to worship in such uh, an amazing Christ-like manner that when an unbeliever enters, they they sense the very presence of Almighty God. And they say, surely God is in this place. That's an amazing thing. So God has set up His church. We must recognize the authority that God has set up even within the church as the leaders are trying to obey and following the Word of God. Paul continues his thought about submission to this church authority. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. See, these rulers and authorities, though, aren't the church authorities. Uh, We can see here that he's talking about a different type of authority here. He's referring to the government. So what Paul is telling Titus to be submissive to is the authorities in the church and in the country. And in the country. So we're to be submissive to the church authorities and the country, those, the government, the civil or civic authority. Now this is a common theme within the Scripture. Continually, continually we are called to be submissive to the authorities of government. Paul wrote about this in the book of Romans chapter 13, verse 1 through 7. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. There was an evangelist in California who was uh, sued for... Actually, the government brought charges against him for tax evasion. He said that he was exempt because he was a servant of God. That's not what the Scripture says. He couldn't play that card. It was not a biblical card to play. He was to follow what the Word of God says... Peter even writes about this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13 through 17. He says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor." Now some might say, how am I supposed to honor a society or honor an institution or the authority set above me if they are an unjust group of leaders? I have thought long and hard about this. I have tried to consider oppressive regimes. I've been learning a lot about Nazi Germany. And here's a government that has been set up, or, or uh, communist Russia under Stalin or Lenin. And I thought, I had to think then, what was going on in the context of 1 Peter that Peter could write, honor the emperor? Now remember, he's talking about honoring Caesar. And, and Paul is writing, probably during the reign of, the, uh, of Nero. Nero. I don't know if you're familiar with Nero. But Nero issued the first uh, Roman-wide persecution of Christians. It was under his reign. And he was a pretty despicable guy. See, in AD 64, a fire broke out in Rome. It was so destructive that it destroyed three of 14 Roman districts. Rome burnt for over five days. It was horrible. It is uncertain who caused the fire. Some believe... Historians believe that Nero himself set it in order to build himself a new palace. And even while the, the fire was burning, tradition says, or history says, that he, although it's not completely unanimous in this, but that Hero dressed up in costume, sang, and played the lyre, a stringed instrument, while the city burned. Now, according to Tacitus, the ancient historian... The population searched for a scapegoat, and rumors held Nero responsible. To deflect blame, Nero targeted Christians. He ordered Christians to be thrown to dogs, while others were crucified and burned. Tacitus described the event. He says this, Consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations. Called Christians, or Christians. By the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate, Pilatus. And a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. They're calling Christianity hideous. Accordingly, an arrest was first made of all who pleaded guilty. So these Christians pleaded guilty to it, although history has also maintained that they were tortured for that fact, and that was brought out of them under torture, duress. Then upon their information, an immense multitude was convicted, not so much of the crime of firing the city as of hatred against mankind. Mockery of every sort was added to their deaths, covered with the skins of beasts, They were torn by dogs and perished, or were nailed to crosses, or were doomed to the flames and burnt to serve as a nightly illumination when daylight had expired. Christians were, in essence, dipped in like a kerosene, placed on poles, and burnt alive. And yet, Peter could say, honor the emperor. How do you do that? How do you honor someone that's so unjust that would persecute someone that way? That that flies in the face. Like I said at the beginning, the Bible is the book of opposites. He's saying respect the authority. Think about Jesus before Pontius Pilate. Did Jesus respect the authority that was set above him? He says, you would have no authority except that which is given to you by God. Jesus even recognized Pilate had authority. And yet he's He still didn't try to maintain his innocence. He gave his life willingly. That flies in the face, I have to say, of our American spirit. It really does. That's why I said at the beginning, don't listen to any other voice. But the voice of God alone. I've asked myself this question as I've been wrestling with this. As we are in a period of time where we have relative peace. Yes, there is a war that's going on overseas. But here we have relative peace with the exception of terrorist attacks, and have to be wary of that. I mean, we don't have rioting in the streets at all times of the day and night. The people aren't, aren't making uh, Malta cocktails and throwing them, and there's not complete riots everywhere we go. So living in this nation of peace, sometimes it's very difficult to look at war and to make judgment calls when we're not in the middle of it. But I've tried to ask myself this question. If we are honoring the authority set above us, what, what cause was there then for the Revolutionary War? War of Independence. I found a good resource. A man by the name of Stephen Cole, a pastor in Flagstaff, Arizona, comments and he says this about the Cretans and on the rest of this. He says, The Cretans were notoriously turbulent, quarrelsome, and impatient of all authority. Polybius, the Greek historian, said of them that they were constantly involved in insurrections, murders, and wars. He goes on to say, Although Paul lived under the tyranny of the tor- notorious notoriously godless nero by the way nero all did all this when he was in his 20s committed suicide at the age of 30 I'll give you an idea although there was much bribery and corruption in the governments of that day at every level paul did not specify that the government must be free of corruption before these principles apply although believers should not engage in bribery Although the government of the time was not even close to being Christian, Paul did not say that his commands only apply if you live in a Christian-based government. The only time that believers are required to disobey secular government is when the government commands us to do something that would require us to disobey God. At that point, we must obey God rather than men, according to the book of Acts chapter 5, verse 29. When the believers there, the apostles, were charged not to speak any further in the name of Jesus Christ. That's when they said, we must obey God rather than men. And perhaps, he goes on to say, and perhaps suffer punishment from the government. My understanding is that Christians should not participate in a revolution to overthrow duly constituted government except in the most dire of situations. Although I am glad to live in the United States and I appreciate our freedom, I cannot justify biblically the American Revolution. I grant that if I had lived under Nazi Germany... It may have been legitimate to try to overthrow Hitler in order to save millions of Jews from his gas chambers. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer attempted to do, that was an ethical dilemma. But Paul did not call for the overthrow of Nero to protect the many believers who were being martyred. So except in rare situations, we submit to our government. The question becomes, when do we disobey? There is only one exception clause, as we just mentioned. When it goes against the word of God, the apostles responded after they were again called before the Jewish Sanhedrin and they said do not speak any longer in the name of Christ and they said we must obey God rather than men we only disobey when we do whatever is in direct contradiction to God's word such as the Hebrew midwives who were commanded by Pharaoh to kill the Hebrew children they refused to obey Pharaoh's command and God honored him for that even Christ honored the civil authority, as we mentioned in John chapter 19, verse 11. When Jesus was being tried before Pilate, Pilate, Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. We must obey the civil authority, but for what reason? Why does God want us to obey the authority set above us? Let's look back at our text, verse 1 and 2. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Going on to verse 3. See, we were once foolish and disobedient. Paul is saying that we seek to embrace our role so that others may see Christ in us. We are participants in the mission of God. Paul wants us to understand that God has given us a commission of love towards society. See, people aren't won to Christ by brute force. As I've been wrestling with this topic, I've had to ask myself the question, what about a theocracy where God is at the center of rule, as He was in ancient Israel? And I have to say, looking at history, when Christians are running the government, it doesn't go well. I'm just being very honest. I'm being very honest. John Calvin's Geneva, it didn't go well. When Constantine made uh, Christianity legal, and then under the Edict of Theodosius, it became the state religion, a lot of problems ensued. Because, see, then people began to try to get these positions of... uh, like political positions, without having Christ in them. They weren't redeemed. How can one measure the human heart? That's the hard part of this entire thing. Should there be Christians in in government? Yes. Yes. But I'm saying, is there a complete Christian government? The Bible doesn't talk about that. It doesn't say that at all. It says, obey the authority set above you. It doesn't mean that we're not to pursue aspects of government. No, that's not it at all. We are to do good, do good works, and we can even do that through government. But we must be very careful in separating the two. Even looking at uh, Puritan, I was living in Massachusetts for some time, and there, what they have blue laws still on the books in New England, where stores are all closed on Sunday. I mean, these are holdovers. But we all know what happened with the Salem witch trials. I mean, it was an egregious evil that was being done in the name of God. So we must be very discerning, and we must enter into this understanding, and I I have to be very careful because I'm trying to make sure that we honor the Word of God above all things, and I know that we walk in a very difficult place. I consider what happened in Nazi Germany, and I look to the Word of God, and it's not an easy place to be. And I realized more than ever that God calls us to suffer, because it's through our suffering that God is magnified. You know, people aren't one to Christ through a show of arms and force. People are one to Christ through suffering and love and sacrificial I mean, sacrificial love and death. And that is not an easy thing to do. That's why Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, "When Jesus bids someone, he bids him come and die." It's a book of opposites. Jesus didn't have by force. Think about the force that even when Peter, when Jesus was getting ready to be taken away at the Garden of Gethsemane. And what did Peter do? Pulls out his sword. And he cuts off the ear of Malchus, uh, the, the servant of the high priest Malchus. And Jesus says, enough of this. Put away your swords. And he grabs the man and he heals him. His kingdom was a different type of kingdom. And it can't be mitigated or achieved by Military force. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't serve in the military. All right? Even when uh, there were soldiers that came to John the Baptist, they asked, What must we do? He said, Do your job well, basically. And even in Romans 13, as we just read, Paul says, He who bears the sword does not bear it in vain. So we can serve in positions. We are not removed from society, as some are, that say we have no military service. We will never serve in any type of government office. That's not what the scripture teaches we have to understand that our overarching concern and pursuit is a commission of love towards society. Now, this commission involves three things. Look at verse 2. To be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. To be obedient, we've already seen that, obeying the authority set above us and ready for every good work. In other words, we are to be serving. We are to be serving how can we be serving those within society in what ways can christ be seen in us we are to be ready to do good work so that christ may be seen in us are we ready to serve our community i like how we have tried to do some things whether it's the car wash that we we did i mean that's just a small thing but we're trying to to serve our community or whether it's going over to the Victory Court Apartments and last last year when we were working with the refugees there. there. There are many different ways that we can serve our community. Some ways might be quite controversial how we can serve our community. But we still must serve, even those that don't deserve it, even those that are wicked. We are to serve. We are to serve so that they might see Christ in us. To speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling. This, mean, this uh, little phrase here, to speak evil of no one, means uh, to not slander, to treat with contempt, or, or not to blaspheme them. And then we're to avoid quarreling means without fighting. What Paul wants us to make sure is that we are Christ-like in our speaking. In our speaking. How is our speech? I have to be on guard in what I say, and I have to admit I don't always do the best that I would like. Paul was very concerned about how we spoke and what we say. As he wrote earlier in Titus chapter 2, verse 8, he says, Having sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Or Colossians chapter 4, verse 6, Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. I shared uh, a few years ago um, about... In Massachusetts, when gay marriage was going through, I was part of a group that went to the steps of the, uh, the Congress building, and we were sitting there at the Capitol building. We were, we were standing out there, and uh, the day of the final vote had come. And I was with a group of people that were minorities. I was just there to see, to stand. And uh, next thing I know, people are shoving posters in our arms, picket si- signs. They just said, we want a right to vote. And the other side was the entire homosexual community gathered in mass, and they were singing Bible songs, which was strange to me. And I I remember sitting there and standing and feeling like a minority and almost feeling ashamed because there were other people on the same side with me that were shouting horrible things. I'm like, that's not Christ-like. That's not letting your conversation be seasoned with salt they were overcome in their zeal and almost had, I mean, had just were spewing this venom of hate. And I, I stood there, and I felt awkward at that moment in time. And a little nervous as the, the, police, the police came on horses. There were barricades up before us, and people were driving down the street, giving them the thumbs up and giving us a different sign. It felt very awkward. But I realized then that's, it's not going to be in our shouting that people are one to Christ. It's not going to be in our condemnation. We have to let our conversation be seasoned with salt. That people, we call people to repentance, yes. But we also make sure that we are known by our love. How was our speech, and especially reference to authorities that we disagree with? What about local offici- officials? What about our senators, our governor? <laughs> governor of Illinois is an easy target. What about our president? Whether or not you agree with him, do are you even respectful in your speech? Think about it. Peter said, honor the emperor. Whether you like our president or not, that's not the point. The point is, is do you honor him? I remember the day after that Barack Obama was elected, and I, I went to church that weekend, and there were some people that were very jubilant, And there were some that were really depressed. And I remember the pastor standing up and he said, you know, shame on you for thinking that Jesus is in the White House. Either way, he's not in the White House. And God will allow someone to be elected. It will be his anointed for good or for ill, for blessing or for judgment. Either way. I think about that statement. It stood with me. And I have to say it's it's a hard thing. I mean, he has not done what Nero did. No way. And some of us have a tendency to look so quickly at a person and judge their heart. And I was thinking about this. Would we have a president who had committed adultery with one of his closest advisors' wives and then had uh, you know, plotted their assassination? Would we have them to be president of the United States? Well, we couldn't have King David. Think about that. Some of these rulers, a man who was guilty of murder... And he'd left the homeland for a while and then comes back and ends up running and leading all the people. That's Moses. These are different people with different backgrounds. And God still uses. Let's be right in our judgment. Making sure that we have speech that is always gracious and seasoned with salt. Look at verse 2 again. To be gentle and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. The word for gentle means forbearing, reasonable, fair. We must, and that must be seen with the showing perfect courtesy toward all people. It means to demonstrate, this word to show, to demonstrate, to put on display our courtesy, this meekness, mildness, patient trust in the midst of difficult circumstances. We are to let the world see our life. In other words, we're to be showing by our lives that we are Christ's. We're to be showing by our lives that we are Christ's. See, God wants us to be accepting our roles in society so that Christ may be seen in us. As Matthew, or Jesus said, uh, as Matthew records, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Can Christ be seen in you? Are you embracing the role that God has for you in society so as to draw others to Him? Even if it means suffering? Even if it means enduring injustice? It's amazing how our suffering draws others to the Savior because our suffering magnifies God. When we suffer and endure it, we are showing that God is worth far more value to us than our very lives and our earthly comforts. People take notice when we endure that kind of suffering, which will result in many souls being saved. I hope that we might all embrace the role so that God may receive praise. And I pray that if you don't have Christ, that you might embrace Him as your Lord and Savior. He is the one who gave Himself for you. He is the one who paid the price for your sins, and He alone is the one through whom we can have salvation. He alone is the voice that we listen to because He alone is the one through whom we have peace and joy through Christ. May we all call on Him and experience the joy of forgiveness of knowing and following Him. If you have not, never accepted Christ, if you never put your faith and trust in Him, you can do so. The Bible is very clear that if we, you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and God raised Him from the dead, confess with your mouth. Trust in Him, and you will be saved. Call out to Him, and He will save. He will forgive your sins, no matter how bad they have been. And then seek to follow Him. Read His Word. Seek to do what He desires you to do. And in, and in that, you will find peace, and joy of walking with Christ. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we are so grateful for what you have done. Lord, may we embrace the roles that you have laid out before us because when we do so, we know that we will find great joy. Lord, help us to continually be refined by your word. We know that it is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. Help us to drown out the voices of our culture and society and that which we have been taught if it is contrary to the word of God. Lord, help us to pick up our cross daily, to understand what it means to suffer for your name's sake, to embrace the role that you have set before us, that we might experience the joy of following and doing what you have set forth within your word. We ask you to do this now. In Jesus' name, amen.